In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Well, you may be here this morning out of a number of reasons. Uh, perhaps, I hope and I trust that you're here out of a sincere devotion to our Lord, as you would on every Sunday, but particularly this Sunday, as we think about the incarnation of Christ, the hypostatic union uh, of God uh, to man, right? That Christ put on flesh and, and He became man without diminishing any of His divinity. Uh, that perhaps that's why you're here, but undoubtedly across our community today, and maybe people in here, you're here out of obligation to your family. I mean, this is just what we do. And, you know, how could I not at least go to church on Christmas, right? Of all the days of the year, I have to go to this one. Or maybe you're just here out of, out of sheer tradition, right? This is just what we do, right? This is, this is what we do every single year, and I can't break tradition. We've been doing this for 35 years, and so far be it to be today, we break a 35-year tradition. Regardless of what reason you're here this morning, I think that we can all use a reminder to heighten our view of Christmas. And that's what I hope as we look at the text this morning in John, and you can open there with me in your Bible, that we would heighten our view of what Christmas is. And I put it this way in your preaching point, is that we must venerate Christmas. That means we need to honor it. We need to revere it. We need to venerate Christmas as the day commemorating, that it's, it is a day that, that we set apart to say, here is a day symbolically representing God's self-revelation through His one and only Son, through whom, right, from whom we would receive the unmerited favor of God. Like That's what Christmas is all about. Like, if you ever wanted a nice little sentence that told you, what is Christmas about? I mean, there it is. The veneration of, of a commemorative day where we say, God revealed himself to us through his son from whom we can receive the unmerited favor of God. Right? If, if there is any other, if there's a comma or there's an and, if there's a but uh, in the way that you define Christmas, we've missed it because this is the definition of Christmas. Uh, and interestingly enough, the definition only comes from the text of John 1, 14 through 18. And so 
I think for us to understand Christmas, we need to understand John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And so if you would, I'd love for you, with your Bible open, to put your eyes on verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there are three terms I think that would be best for you to understand the meaning of verse 14 in its historical context, which is, I hope is going to help you recognize that verse 14 is the key to understanding Christmas, and it's also the key to recognizing that God's been doing this work long before verse 14. So the first word is dwelt. That word dwelt is literally the word we get for tabernacled, right? And if that gave you like a little bit of a, a light bulb moment, you're like, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible talk a lot about these things called tabernacles and temples and tents? Uh, the answer would be yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, in the Old Testament, a predominant theme in the Old Testament is God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, in what, what we eventually see called the temple, and so John, as he's speaking of this, he's like, the word of God, this is Christ, became flesh. He tabernacled among us. He was the presence of God among his people. And we have seen his glory. There's your second word. So maybe in your Bible, circle dwelt and circle glory. Right? If you've been here for very long, you, reckon, you know the word glory is the word doxa, which means weight. It means the splendor. So we have seen... In the Word become flesh, dwelling amidst the people, we have now seen the weight and splendor of God in Christ. And we're going to address more of God's glory in verse 18, but, but go ahead and circle that word. And there's another phrase I want you to circle, and then we'll jump into them. And we have seen His glory. And this is the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's your third phrase in verse 14. Circle grace and truth. Uh, often we want to divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament uh, because often the New Testament is easier to read. But the problem is if you divorce verses 14 and 18 from the Old Testament, you completely miss the substance of what this text is telling us. And, and I believe the weight and the substantive nature of this text. We'll go word for word here, right? Well, let's start with at least the last one, right there. Grace and truth. Grace and truth are, are concepts we see a lot in the New Testament. But do you know they're in the Old Testament? Actually, scholars will tell you that grace and truth are their most likely the Greek equivalents to two Old Testament phrases, right? The first one you get from grace, which is in the Old Testament, the word hesed. Hesed, which is the word for love, God's steadfast love, his covenant keeping love, right? Because if you think about the Old Testament and God's covenant keeping love in the Old Testament, you recognize it was something given to Israel even though they didn't deserve it, right? You've read the Old Testament, right? Over and over again, Israel failed and failed and failed and failed. And what did Israel appeal to when they failed? God's Hesed love, his unmerited favor, right? God, according to your steadfast love. According to your covenant-keeping love. Not according to our actions and our goodness, but according to your covenant-keeping love. Do this according to your, for your glory, for your namesake, for your steadfast love. Right? There's the word for grace. And truth, 
is the Hebrew term for emet, which is faithfulness, okay? And that's important because if you read and you understand grace and truth are the Old Testament equivalents of the words hesed and emet, you then, if you have seen much of the Old Testament, you see the term steadfast love and faithfulness a lot through the Old Testament, don't you? As a matter of fact, we're going to get to this morning recognizing that John 14 through 18 and chapter 1, 14 through 18 is all encapsulated in Exodus 30 through 40. You find every single concept and every meaning of what 14 through 18 means if you just open up Exodus 30 and read from Exodus 30 to Exodus 40. So if you want the Christmas story, you need to read Exodus 30 through Exodus 40 because it tells you everything that is meant when we read verses 14 through 18, when we think about the presence of God. So as we look at grace and truth, and it means, and we understand in its Old Testament expression, it means God's steadfast love and faithfulness, then all we do is look at texts like Exodus 34. Jot that down, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses, and this is at the tent of meeting, which we'll get to in a moment. The tent of meeting, God was there when Moses went into the tent of meeting, Uh, And he passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So John, as he's writing verses 14 through 18, is appealing to the God of Exodus chapters 30 through 40. And he's letting us know the same God that I'm talking about in Exodus is the same God I'm telling you dwells among us today. That's something, isn't it? All right, what about, what about the other word? So we see grace and truth. We see how that's connected to Exodus. What about the other one? What about the second word? We'll go from bottom to top. We have seen his glory. I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, what was always the, the impressive reality of Israel when they're on Sinai and they see the glory of God coming down in the clouds and the thunder and they have great fear? I mean, we saw it, right, even in the song that we just sang Right, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Right? The tribes there on Sinai's hide, and they saw the glory of the Lord, and great fear struck them. Right? We see that. Here, we, we see in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We have seen the weight. We have seen the splendor of God, which is the theme of Exodus, the glory of God. And so the same God that was there in Exodus is the same God that the Word who has become flesh and is dwelling among us, the same God whose glory we see, whose weight, whose splendor, whose exact imprint we see in Christ. I'll take you right down another Exodus verse, Exodus 40, just to show you how important the, the glory, this is John saying the same God that was with Moses is the same God with you and me today. Exodus 40, starting at verse 32. And when they went into the tent of meeting, which I'll get to that in just a sec. And when they approached the altar, they washed, and the Lord commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle. Okay, so if you want to know what the tent of meeting is, it was the pre-tabernacle. Right? The tent of meeting is the pre-tabernacle before they built the whole, before they finished the whole construction of it. Which is, if it's a pre-tabernacle, that means it was the pre-pre-temple. Okay, Because you have the tent of meeting, then you have the tabernacle, then you have the temple when they eventually settle in the land of Canaan and you have Solomon there and he builds Solomon's temple. This is the pre-pre-temple, which you know the temple is where the presence of God dwelt. And so here, in the pre-pre-temple, in the tent of meeting, this is where God's presence was. And so they erected the court 
around the tabernacle and the altar, because now we have a tabernacle because they finished the construction. And they set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished his work. Watch this, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and watch this, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, what did we see in verse 14? The word of God became flesh and tabernacled. That is, divinity dwelt in humanity. That was the glory of the Lord came down, and as you see the Spirit of God filling the tabernacle in Exodus, you see the glory of God filling up in humanity, dwelling among, among his people. Does that give you goosebumps in here? This is what Christmas is about. We look at a baby in a manger, what you're seeing is the glory of God has come and dwelt among us. When we see the babe, we see God incarnate. And watch this, because this is where the the difference between Moses and us. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. According to the law, according to the Old Testament, it would be impossible for man to dwell with God in the sense of personal relationship because God is too holy and man is too sinful. So you see throughout all of the, the Old Testament, particularly Exodus and Leviticus, all these laws that set a people apart, that purifies them through ceremonial laws, that sets them apart through moral laws, and sets their country apart through civil laws so that these people can have a relationship with God. But there was always a separation. God belongs in the Holy of Holies, and you belong out there. There was always, even though in God's loving kindness, He created a way for His people to be around Him, it was not sufficient for God to dwell with His people in personal relationship according to the grace and mercy of God, living eternally together with God. It was based upon the moral law, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law. So we see even here, as beautiful and as gracious as it was that Moses was able to to be around the presence of God, he was not able to enter into the tent where the presence of God was. was, He's insufficient. But yet we see, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen His glory. We've all seen it. In Christ, the world has seen the glory of God in a way that no one in history is able to be seen the glory of God. Because, the first word, he dwelt. He tabernacled. And I'm taking this from bottom to top. I'm hoping it kind of helps unfold this in a way that's helpful for you. Because Exodus is all about the deliverance of God's people from Egypt and God preparing a nation where he will dwell in their midst. And so here, when we talk about dwelling, that's the concept of all the Bible. You hear me talking about that all the time. The major theme of all the Bible is that God would bring a people to himself so he would dwell with them. He was dwelling with man and woman in the garden. They sinned. They created a necessary separation because of sin. And ever since that day, and even at that day, it's always been about God bringing a people, setting a people apart for himself to dwell with them. And today, today, 2023... It is still the same message. God has sent his son 
to die in our place as our substitute, that for those who would turn from their sins and place their trust in him, that God would then separate us by putting the righteousness of Christ on us and then taking our sin and placing it on Christ on the cross, then separating you, bringing you in relationship with him, and voila, you're a part of the biblical narrative because you've responded to the major theme of all the Bible, God with us. He dwells with us, and we see this as we celebrate Christmas in verse 14. He dwelt among us. And you see that last text in Exodus here for point number one uh, that I haven't even told you yet. I'll get there. <laughs> verse 7. Verse 7 of Exodus 33. Now Moses, you understand, Moses, Moses was the official representative between Israel and God. He was the prophet. And he would take and he would, he would take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. Did you notice that? Far off. Why? Sin, holiness, get it, get them separated. And he called it the tent of meeting, which is the pre-tabernacle. And everyone, listen to this, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. So if you wanted to go to the presence of God, you had to be separated and you had to go out there and then you could approach the glory of God, which was outside the camp. It wasn't in the camp. It wasn't in the presence of the people's lives. It was outside the camp because of the sin of the people. Verse 9. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Thus, verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face, face to face as man speaks to his friend. I want you to see that you can't read verse 14 without reading Exodus 30 through 40. Did we all at least get there? Right? If you want to understand what in the world does the prologue mean in John, it seems very confusing because you must know what God's been doing since before that. You've got to know what God's doing in the Old Testament. And what I hope that you see as we look at verse 14 is that Jesus, as he dwells with us, no longer in the tent of meeting outside the camp, no longer in the temple, that we see his glory, not as, the, not as the glory that's filling the temple, but as the glory of God that has filled humanity in the person of Christ. And in, in the person of Christ, we no longer have the law that shows us in some form God's gracious and mercifulness, which the law of God surely does that, right? It's not sufficient to save us, but it does show us God's desire to dwell with his people. We no longer see it in the form of the law. We see grace and truth in the form of the man, Jesus Christ. And that changes things, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, that changes everything. You can put it that way. Point number one, write it down this way. Recognize that Christmas changes everything. Everything. I mean, absolutely everything. There is nothing that is the same other than the fact that God has always wanted to dwell with his people. And in Christ, he has made a way for us to dwell with him. Speaking of changing everything, I want you to think of events that change the trajectory of your life. Think of events. Maybe uh, you got married, okay? Maybe you had some children. Uh, maybe in, in, in a negative, right? Maybe there was a diagnosis that you, that you had that had to change everything. I hope for many of you in here, it was, it was the day of your salvation. Changed the whole trajectory of your life, didn't it? Now, you recognize when something changes the trajectory of your life, it doesn't just change a couple of things. It changes everything, your affections are different. You think about when you get married, right? Your affections are towards one woman, one man. 
You're, you have a children. Your affection are towards your child that did not exist and now does. It changes everything. Your salvation. You've been brought from death to life. Your affections were the things of the world, the things of darkness, the things that gave you pleasure, the things that, that, that God appalled. And in, when he took you out of darkness and put you in the kingdom of light, your affections changed. It changed everything. Move from the personal to the, to the global the cosmic reality that Christmas is that event for the whole world. Christmas is that event from the whole world. It changes absolutely everything. I'll give you just a small glimpse of that. Okay, Not only is our calendar, which you recognize our calendar, 2023, 2023 years away from what? Christ. Okay, well that's, just, that's a small one. Let me give you a better one. Okay? Uh, do you know that every religion, you should do a study, Every religion has to have a subsection of what in the world do we do with that person named Jesus? Right? Do you notice in Christianity uh, there's not a subsection that says, what do we do with that other religion over there? We say, no, this is the only religion. This is the only truth that is true truth that gets you into relationship with God. But every other religion says, here's what we believe and here's what we do with Jesus. The world doesn't know what to do with Jesus, but they recognize they can't just leave him alone because he changes everything. The world knows about Jesus, and so every religion has to have a subsection and say something about him. He's a really good teacher. He was a really great rabbi. He was the sage of sages. Right? He was a really, really good teacher. Uh, some, even like your Mormons, he's, he's a lesser God. Right? They don't want to honor him as Lord. They don't want to see him in the way the prologue of John sees him, but they recognize that they would be foolish, and they would lose converts if they don't do something with this person named Jesus because he changed the world. And if my religion doesn't have the individual that changed the world, what substance does my religion have? Every religion in the world says we got to do something. If we want to be valid right in, the, in ours, we got to do something with Jesus. And all I'm saying is, I'm, not, I'm saying they're dead wrong in what they think about Jesus. But what I want us to at least do is scratch the surface to recognize it hasn't gone over the world's head to think about Christmas and say, oh man, we got to do something with this. We can't just look past this. We can't just close our eyes for 24 hours and wait for December the 26th. We can't do it. We got to do something with this Christ. And all I'm saying, personally, even as Christians in here, sometimes we speed past this day. The closer we get to Christmas, I think the, the more downtrodden I see the congregation here, the more I see heads hanging. And I'm telling you this personally. These are the hardest weeks sometimes for me personally. And I think if you're like me, it's because we miss it. I think it's because we don't recognize that Christmas changes everything. And the world in so many ways tries to change Christmas away from the real reason Christmas changes everything. And for you and for me, we need to recognize it for the whole world, for the universe, the incarnation of Christ changes everything, and we got to ask ourselves, do we pause and consider Jesus? I mean, other than just being at a Christmas Eve service, which I hope this helps in so many ways for you to recognize, whatever you had planned after this, you need to ask yourself, is it worthy of my Lord? Is this what the Lord would want me to be focusing on on the day commemorating his self-revelation through his one and only Son from whom we receive the unmerited favor of God. Is whatever I got planned worthy of remembrance for that? That changes everything, doesn't it? My priorities change. My decisions change. My affections change. 
Are you pausing to venerate this day, to, to esteem it, to exalt it to a place that, that, that where it ought to be? That when we look at this day, we tell people, this day is the day that we celebrate the grace of God appearing for us, for our sin, for our salvation. And then we begin thinking about gifts, right? And I hope you do eventually start thinking about gifts when you think about Jesus. Because the promise of Christmas, it is a gift. It's a gift that is given. It's a gift that can't be bought. It's a gift that we can only receive. It's a gift that we can only receive by faith. And we see it, look with me in verse 16. We're not skipping verse 15. We, we addressed John the Baptist last week. This week I want us to look at verse 16 as we think about the context of the grace of God. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. So in the Old Testament, we understand that the grace is the word used in the Old Testament for hesed, right? God's covenant keeping, steadfast love. But in a, in a phrase, in a definition, you can understand it as this God's unmerited favor. That's what grace is. If you wonder what does it mean, the word grace, it means unmerited favor. So anytime you're giving someone grace, you ever heard people say, Could you just give me a little bit of grace? What they're asking is, Could you give me favor that I did not achieve on my own that comes from you without my works and me meeting your standards? That's what unmerited favor is. That's what grace means. And from Christ, we have received unmerited favor upon unmerited favor. So we've received a, received a copious amount of unmerited favor that does not end in the incarnation of Christ and his grace given to humanity. We have received in the Old Testament terminology his hesed love, his steadfast love through the unmerited favor of God. Now, and here's how we, here's how we know, if you're wondering, how do you know all this comes out of Exodus? Well, we just looked at the text, but verse 17 tells you in John 1, for the law was given through Moses. So either he's talking about Moses in the Old Testament, or this is completely out of turn, and we just introduced a new character to a text that shouldn't be there. But that's not the case. The whole text is drawing our attention back to the covenant at Sinai, the tabernacle, Moses, and this is what verse 17 tells us. For the law was given through Moses. Right? We understand that there was a, Moses was a prophet of God. is bringing the words of God down through the old covenant, telling us that, listen, God wants to be in right relationship with you, but you're sinful. That I'm setting you apart as a nation, Israel, as a people. And because of that, there is an expectation that you would live a holy life. Deuteronomy teaches that. Leviticus teaches that. You must be holy for I am holy. And for you to be in relationship with me, you must be pure. Right? And people say, well, that sounds pretty messed up of God to, to require all these things from people. No, no, no. The beautiful thing about God and the, and the law was that God said, I want to be with you. But holiness cannot be with sin. Perfection cannot be with corruptness. And in order for my love to extend to you, there has to be this, this uh, holiness that even as you read through the Old Testament is expressed not by the perfect obedience of Israel, but by faith and by the covenant-keeping love of God. And we see that, and we look in verse 17 that the law was given through Moses. So we talk about the unmerited favor comes from Jesus. The law came from Moses. And, we, okay, well, let me tie that up in a bow because maybe perhaps you're like, I, I get it, but I don't get it. All right, jot down Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2. 16. Because what we want to know is how can we be justified? 
How can I be saved? How can I be right with God? I mean, isn't that the question that we ask? Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So I understand that I cannot be made right before God because of my works. I can't be justified by my works. Works are, can do wonderful things. They're a part of the Christian faith. Read Ephesians 2. You can read Ephesians 2, 7 through 11, and you'll recognize that there is a complete mutuality between the idea of faith and works and how God uses them in his economy. But when it comes to justification, there is no way to be justified by works of the law. So I have a problem that Galatians 2 solves in verse 16. I can't be justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so as we think about the Sinai's covenant, we think about the old covenant, we recognize that Moses' covenant that he uh, brokered on behalf of Israel was not sufficient for the justification of the people. It was not sufficient for you and I's justification, not on the part of God, but on the part of man. Man could not hold up their part of Sinai's covenant, of the Old Testament covenant. It was never a deficiency in God. It was always a deficiency in man. And so because of that, God sent his son who would do two things. Fulfill the Old Testament covenant like only God could do, and then bring us grace and truth, that we would have a favor from God that is not because of works, that is not earned, that is completely unmerited on behalf of God given to humanity. And that is the rest of verse 17, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You want the unmerited favor of God? You want the truth of the condition of man and God's answer for it? You're only going to find that through Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. That's Merry Christmas. You want the unmerited favor of God? Do you want to see the glory of God? Do you want to be in the presence of God? Do you want the love of God? Do you want to be loved by God? You will be loved by God if you will love Jesus. If you want to meet God, you've got to meet Jesus. If you want to see the glory of the Father, you must submit to the glory of the Son. Because it's in Him that we have the unmerited favor of God. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because it's all about grace. Christmas is a celebration of God's unmerited favor to the world. And you can put that as point number two. Celebrate the unmerited favor of God. Christmas is about celebrating the unmerited favor of God. And that brings me to a real important applicational question. Is your celebration of Christmas centered on the unmerited favor of God? Is the way that you bring your family up and teach them to celebrate Christmas, is the way that you prioritize what you do in Christmas, when you invite all your family over, when you cook your big meal, does it revolve around the unmerited favor of God given to us in Christ Jesus this day? Or is it centered around other things, lesser things, presents, family, wonderful things, Not the point of the unmerited favor of God. What your family needs is the unmerited favor of God. So to make Christmas about anything less than the unmerited favor of God would be to offer and present something that is less than your family needs. 
When you bring your kids around the tree, what they need is the unmerited favor of God, not a new car, not a new toy. What your, what your spouse needs, they don't need a new watch, they don't need new diamond earrings, they need the unmerited favor of God. Right? Amen? Anybody? Everyone's like, no, I got those earrings on sale. Okay. <laughs> We're not going to get the grace of God on sale. It costs the precious blood of Jesus. And that's what we need. It's the costliest of gifts. It's the costliest of grace because it cost the Son of God his life. And that's what we celebrate. Let's not diminish Christmas by making it about lesser things. Let's make Christmas about the greatest gift, about the greatest thing. Let's venerate Christmas for what it is. Let's take Christmas away from captivity of what it has been and what we often can create in our culture and make it really just allow it to be what it really, really is, a celebration of the unmerited favor of God. See, Christmas, we're going to understand it rightly, is a celebration of knowing God. Isn't that what the world wants? How do I know God? How, do I, how does God know me? Well, let's take some time on Christmas to understand how to know God. I mean, this has historically been humanity's issue, isn't it? Knowledge of God, knowing God. Adam and Eve knew God personally. They sinned. God separated them. It's been the problem ever since. And really, verse 18 tells us that. Look at verse 18. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Here's your key to the text. You want to talk about the importance of Christmas? You must not skip verse 18. No one has ever seen God. We take for granted that Jesus was God, and so we live as though everyone has always been, forever been able to see God, and the text of Scripture tells us the problem is no one can see God. No one. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the only monogenes, right, which is that word, the only, right, the only one, mono meaning one, genes, right, you understand that's where we get the word for gene, right, one unique one, monogenes, this idea that we're not just talking about a child of God. We're talking about the Son of God, the only one who could have done this, the one who came from the Father's side has been sent incarnate, dwelt among us, and he... Jesus has made God known. That word known is a really, really important word because it's where we get the English word exegete, right? Which a lot of you, you come to this church because you believe and trust that we exegete the word, right, properly. That we are good expositors of the word because we exegete the word. The problem with some society is they can't exegete God. They can't know God in a way that is intelligible, that leads to personal relationship. We have this exegesis problem, and I don't mean any play on words there. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about exegesis, the word. We have an exegesis problem. We can't look at God and interpret him rightly in order to have a right relationship with him. And you know as well as I do that if anyone's going to have a relationship with you, they need to know you, don't they? They can't just say what they think you are, and you're just going to have to deal with it. right? You don't want that. The only way we're going to know God is to know him, for him to be exegeted in a way where we can see him clearly. And that is the beauty of Christmas, that God sent his son to exegete himself, to say, you want to know me, get to know my son. He is the exact imprint of my nature, that's what scripture says. 
right? Uh, the, the, the early church, they had a council, and they put them together, and they said, how do we explain Jesus, the triune God? How do we explain the second person of the Trinity? And they came up with this word, homoousius. Homoousius. Homo meaning one. Ousius, essence. He is one essence with the Father. You want to know who Jesus is? He is the same, of the same essence as the Father. You want to know God? You must know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you clearly, clearly perceive the Father. Right? This is why we call the exclusivity of the gospel. You can't know God the Father apart from Jesus. Jesus has made him known and exegeted him perfectly. There is no way to understand who the Father is unless you know the Son. And that's why we believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. There is only one name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And he, we see, has made him. No one has ever seen God, but he has been made known. He's been exegeted to us from Christ. One more Exodus verse. Exodus 33. Remember I told you, Exodus 30 through Exodus 40. You can know all of this. Exodus 30, starting in verse 20. We'll look through verse 23. But, God said, this is when, you know this famous part of uh, Exodus where, where Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, okay, yeah, you don't know what you're asking, but okay. And God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? There's a problem, right? We all want to see God. I don't think you do. Because the way that God tells me that if, that if I see him, I'm going to die. There's got to be a way for us to be in right relationship with him so that when I look at him, I don't die. Because he's telling Moses, as great as Moses is, as as much of a prophet as as Moses was between God and Israel, he was going to die if he saw God. And so, the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, right, that is the weight of, while the, the splendor of God, we're not even talking about the actual manifestation of God anthropomorphically, if you will. We're just talking about the glory. We're just talking about the, the, the rays of the glory of God. They're going to pass by you, and you're going to stand over there. And as I, my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. So here's what Moses gets. Don't look over here. If you look over here, you're going to die. You get to see a little bit of something, but I'm going to cover it up for you so you don't die. And so when we see in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, they're alluding back to, John's alluding back to Exodus 33, which we recognize, you see how, like, the danger of God's presence is you're going to die in God's presence without a mediator, without the Son making him known, bringing you in relationship with him, you will die. And in verse 23 there, then I will take away my hand after I've passed by, and you shall see my back. I love that, right? All you can see is the back. You can't see my face. Because, Jesus, because God says, but my face shall not be seen. You want to talk about the extraordinary reality of the incarnation? That when Christ was born for the first time in history, we saw the face of God. That is the beauty of Christmas. And you better believe that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because the God that we could not see, we can now see. And the God that you could not lay your eyes on, the God that you could not be close to, you can now have a personal relationship with because he has come for you and for me. You see, the profundity of this text, 
extraordinary nature of this text should, should allow us and lead us to marvel. And that's the point number three. I want you to marvel at this. I want you to marvel at the privilege of clearly perceiving God. You have this privilege. You had the privilege to clearly see God through Jesus Christ. You ever want to know, how can I know more of God? Open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read you some Bible. You're going to find a lot more information and a lot more knowledge of God than you would ever believe that you could know. You can find it there. You want to read what else God thinks? you got 66 books there. God speaking and superintending over authors of the Scripture to say, this is my words to humanity. Let them know. And we can marvel as we open up God's Word to us that we have in 66 books of the Bible all the words that God wants us to know so we can clearly perceive Him in the penultimate, right? The, the, the pinnacle, right? The, the climax of all of this is Christmas Day as the commemorative day of God's self-revelation of His Son to us that we could receive his unmerited favor. Right? Christmas means that we see God. I mean, don't you think about that? We get to be in relationship with God. If we would respond to the offer of grace, if we would turn from our sins, place our trust in Christ, the problem that we've had from ages past, our sin separates us from a holy God. You need an intermediary. You need a mediator. You need a substitute. And his name is Jesus, who took on flesh just like you while maintaining all of his divinity, that he could both be the person that is God and be the man, which is what we have to deal with, he would be sufficient to take on our sin on the cross. That if you were to respond to that, you too would be in a personal relationship with God and being in God's family. I mean, to think about it this way, how can I know I'm saved? Listen to this. If God dies in your place, you can bet your bottom dollar on it you're saved. If God says, I'll take your place, I'm pretty safe. Because if I think about God and his sufficiencies, he's created all of the universe and he's let me know everything about him that is true and faithful and right, I know that he says, I will go before you and I will take your place. You will take my righteousness. I will take your sin. And what you need to do is turn from your sin and place your trust in me and your fate and your eternity is sealed in me. I'm in. And that's what Christmas is about. We think about the body. think about the blood of Christ. I thought there would be no better day for us than today to take the Lord's Supper. So as uh, our ushers begin passing out the Lord's Supper, our elements here, I just want us to begin thinking about the body, the incarnation of Christ. Think about that. You can't think about Christmas without thinking about the cross. You ought not to. You ought never to. Because when we think about Christ being veiled in flesh, we must think about what was the purpose of the flesh. What was the purpose of his body? What was the purpose of his blood? Ultimately, the purpose of those things were that his body would be given in our place and his blood would be spilt on our behalf, that we, as we are covered in his blood and as his body takes our place, we recognize that God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. And so for you, as the ushers begin passing it out, I want you to recognize, number one, the Lord's Supper is for the Christian. And so I don't want to I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I'd like to be the bearer of the best news. Right? If you're saved in this room, the symbol of what we have right here is a symbol of what is actually true for you as a Christian, that Christ has died for you, that you might live for him. So, And as we take this, I don't, I don't want us to take it right now. I want us to hold it so as we sit here and think. And I want you to think right before we pray of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you're a Christian here, you know the grace, you know the unmerited favor of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, exalted to the right hand of the Father, the darling of heaven, yet for your sake he became poor. You know what that, you know what that means? He became like you. Poor. So whatever state you're in, if you're the wealthiest of those in the hill country, if you're the poorest of those in the hill country, you can recognize one thing. When God looks down at the, at the identity of creation, he sees only poverty. As he steps down from the riches of heaven, for our sake, he became poor. So that by his poverty, so that by his incarnation in his place on the cross, on your behalf, you might become rich. What we celebrate on Christmas is the riches of heaven coming down to us in our poverty and making us rich in heavenly treasure and heavenly goodness and eternal hope. So what I would love for you to do now, I want you to take a moment, I want you to pray. And as we often do, I want you to use the three R's that, that, we, that we think would be helpful. I want you to remember what Christmas is about, the incarnation of Christ. I want you to reflect on that personally in your life. Are you thinking rightly about who God is? Are you responding rightly to who God is? And then, if necessary, which I would say most likely is, if you're anything like me, that you would need to take some time to repent and ask for forgiveness. In so many ways, you failed God in his ultimate faithfulness to us. And I don't want you to stay in a place of that mourning, which is often part of our Christian faith as we recognize how much we fail the Lord, but that you would do the last part, and that is rejoice. You see, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us in right relationship with God to rejoice in the hope of eternity, for us to think about the fact that we take this in a memorial way, to memorialize what has happened, but to look forward to the day when we get to meet Christ and eat this supper in what is called in Revelation the marriage supper of a lamb. And so let us do that now in a few moments. Pray. And I'll close us. Father, as we think now about the reality of the incarnation of Christ, his substitute on our behalf, we remember this time of year, we remember this day, we remember the representation of Christmas as the day that you stepped out of heaven to take our place here. And we reflect on that, and we, in utmost thanksgiving as Christians in this room, 
we say thank you. We say praise to you. We glorify you. We esteem you. We give you what is rightly due your name. And God, I do pray even for those who aren't saved in this room, that although they we would withhold from taking the Lord's Supper at this moment, that it would be a, uh, it'd be a realization for them that just like they uh, are withholding and taking the Lord's Supper here, that you're going to withhold the marriage supper of the Lamb there. And God, we desire that that would happen to nobody, but that everyone would come to know you and that they would turn from their sin. They'd place their trust in you. And in that, God, we recognize that all of us as Christians on a regular basis need to repent. And uh, God, with that, we, we recognize how easily we are swayed, how easily uh, the pleasures of this life that are fleeting are so, uh, God, they're so powerful in our life. And we pray uh, in repentance that we are so easily swayed from your will and your love and your abundant mercy and grace to pursue the things uh, that are worldly, that are not of you. But we also rejoice that there is coming a day where every sin will be removed, for our captivity in this flesh will be taken away, and we will be given a glorified body where sin doesn't reign. God, where every tear will be wiped away, and we'll rejoice forevermore. So in this moment, we take the Lord's Supper, thanking you and rejoicing in our relationship with you. And we all pray this in Christ's name. Amen.